0: The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. To those of you who would like to join me in this reading the scripture today, you're welcome to turn into your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. verses 1 through 18. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interest, but of the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's join our hearts together in prayer. Father, we thank you and give you honor and glory for who you are, the one true God, Father, we thank you that you are the one God who has created all things. And being that you are the creator, you also sustain all things and you own all things. And Father, we are thankful to be called your children and to be able to call you Father by what your Son has done for us on that cross. Lord, we thank you and praise your name for how you provide all good things for us, how you supply us our daily provision, how you empower us and guide us and teach us by your Spirit. Father, we also thank you for the gift of your church. Father, we thank you especially for this place we call Grace On the Ashley. And Father, how by your love and your patience and your mercy and grace have poured upon us blessings more than what we deserve or can thank you for. Father, we thank you that you continue to build your church and that you continue to mold it into the sh- and shape it into what you have called it to be and what you have planted it to be. And Father, we pray that you continue to do that to grace on the Ashley. Father, continue to grow us in unity and in love. And Father, as Paul said to the church at Philippi, May you also grow us in humility. And, Father, may we not only look out for the interests of ourselves, but also for the interests of others. And, Father, as Paul encouraged the church of Philippi, Lord, to, to be a light into the darkness, Father, we pray that by the power of your Spirit that you will do that in and through us also. Father, may we continue to be good stewards of all that you have so graciously given us. And, Father, we thank you we have this opportunity together in your house and to hear the preaching of your word. And, Father, we thank you for your faithful servant, Greg, as he prepares to bring us your word. And, Father, may your spirit uh, speak through him in power. And, Father, we know uh, that you promise that your word will not go out void, that it will return in the purpose that you purposed it. And, Father, we pray that if there is one here today who does not have that relationship with you, that is separated by sin from that right relationship with you, Father, we pray that your spirit will do that work that only he can do and convicting that person of how he has been separated from you and that you will draw him today through the preaching of your word. Father, again, thank you for how you provide for all of our needs and that you work all things for our good. Lord, we love you, we honor you, and now we join our hearts together to worship and praise you. And may your, your spirit continue to do that work in and through us to make us into the likeness of your Son. And we ask these things in your Son's holy and precious name. Amen.
1: I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 27 this morning. Psalm 27. David writes, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident Sacrifices and shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek? Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. I'm entitled The Message This Morning When Life Challenges Our Theology. Because as we look at Psalm 27, we see the psalm, a song that flows out of the heart of David. A man who understood the Lord, who knew the Lord, who had good theology, but who also understood that life challenges the things we believe. That life has a way of of invading our, our circumstances or bringing circumstances upon us that cause us to step back and ask the question, do I really believe what I say I believe? It's easy on a Sunday morning to sit in a context like this when we're singing praise to the Lord and we're among like-minded people and there's no real threat on our heads at the moment and we can, for the most part, be happy and joyful and be with people like us and we can sing and we can declare the truth to the Lord and we can recite to one another and to the Lord what we believe. It's another thing when life crumbles all around us. And then we're forced to practice what we say we believe. Life has a way of challenging our theology. Life has a way of invading our reality. Invading sort of the the sanitary confines of our theological belief system. And bringing into our life circumstances that force us outside of just the realm of thought into the realm of practice. And it's in those moments where we realize for ourselves, do we really believe what we say we believe? Is our theology legit? Does it stand up to the test of life? True theology, the kind that comes from the Lord, true faith in the Lord, a true knowledge of God, doesn't get blown away when life challenges it. I've lived long enough and I've pastored long enough, and I've walked with enough people in a church context over the years through horrendous life challenges to have seen the whole gamut of responses. There's nothing better as a pastor to come alongside somebody that you know and that you care about, somebody from within the body of Christ that you know has a foundation of belief in the Lord, but life has brought into their life things that they had never dreamed of and never wished for and didn't want, but are the reality in which they live, and to see them sort of navigate through that season and come out on the other side with a faith that is intact and a faith that is strong and a faith that is now perhaps even stronger than it was before life brought the challenge. But I've seen my share of the opposite as well. Folks who could recite all sorts of Bible to you. Folks who could answer theological questions for you, perhaps deeper than most. People who could explain to you the difference between election and human choice and will. People who could talk to you about the end times and give you all the nuances of the different viewpoints of what it's going to look like in the timing of the Lord's return. But when life challenges their theology... And those circumstances come, and life begins to crumble around them. They wash out, and they walk away, and they crumble. You see, life has a way of challenging our theology. And David is a man just like you, just like me. He was a man who had a a clear theology about him, but he was a man who also lived life in the real world. A life that was not sheltered, even though he was a king. A life that was not uh, insulated from problems and from challenges and from, in fact, life-threatening circumstances. He was a man whose theology was constantly put to the test. And this is a song that he writes out of the crucible of the challenges of life that are putting pressure on his theology. His experience is not unique If you walk long enough with the Lord, you will experience the same thing. Perhaps you've even come this morning experiencing that. Year 1782, Cambridge, England, there was a young man named Charles. Charles was a a, a theological student at the local university. He was just finishing up his time of theological studies. And like all of us who go through theological studies, you come out on the other side with all this wonderful theology. And you think, man, I'm going to go out there and I'm just going to win the world for Jesus. I got it all figured out. If I can just get a group of people who will show up and listen to all the great wisdom that I have, the world will be a better place. Charles, in his days of university, had often walked by local university church. And he said later in writing about his experiences as a university student this, he said he often thought to himself, how should I rejoice if God were to give me that church? That I might preach the gospel there and be a herald for him in the university. What a great longing, right, for a theological student to pass by a church and say, Lord, if you would just give me that church... I could preach a gospel here and it could go out in this university and revival is going to break out on campus and in the city in Cambridge is going to be one for the Lord. Right? The vision we have for ministry was burning in the heart of young Charles. Fresh off of a good theological education. He had it all figured out. And lo and behold, God granted His wish. And as a fresh young student, he was appointed... By the local religious authorities to pastor that very church that he had often walked by and prayed for Must have been a great honor must have been a moment of great joy to have received that message You're going to be the pastor of the church that you've been praying for The problem is as soon as he got in the pulpit of the church of life challenged his theology You see there were problems in the church Problem number one, the people of the church didn't want him to be their pastor. Now that's a problem right out of the shoots. To make matters worse, not only did they not want him to be their pastor, they wanted an existing person in the congregation who had been the assistant pastor to be the pastor. That's double trouble. To make their preference very clear, There was an afternoon service that happened every Sunday that the people had control over the organization of. So they appointed the assistant minister to preach at the afternoon service, not their new young pastor. In fact, not only did they appoint someone else to preach, they wouldn't let him in the building for the service. So this young theological student says, "Okay, I got it. We'll figure an end around on this game. And he says, we'll plan a Sunday evening service and invite the townspeople. Good plan, right? Good plan. He's an eager eager young man. The only problem is the church people locked the building so nobody could get in in the evening. and wouldn't give him a key. So people had to stand out on the front porch and out in the street, and he had to hold services out there. One time he even had a locksmith come and unlock the doors only to find the locks were changed again the next week, the next Sunday evening. To show their disdain for him even more, what they would do is... How many of you have been to First Baptist Church of Charleston at some point? If you've been down there, then you can see something that will help you visualize this next piece. If you go to First Baptist Charleston, I believe when you go in that historic sanctuary, the pews still have little doors on the ends, don't they? That open and close? The same was true in Cambridge, England, in Charles' day. The difference was they had locks on them and people had their pew and their key to the lock on the doors to their pew. So what they would do on Sunday mornings is they would lock their pews and not show up for service. Life was challenging young Charles' theology. Charles, never the one to give up, decided at his own expense he would go and he would buy some extra chairs to put in the aisles and the nooks and the corners of the, of the room out of his own pocket. And people would come and they would sit in the aisles and sit in the nooks and stand by the walls while the church pews were empty and locked during the service. Not only that, but as he navigates through his ministry... He's hated by the university students at the local university, you know, the ones that he thought he was going to reach with the gospel because he was a gospel preacher who believed in the fidelity of the scriptures. And so they would disrupt the services as well and create all sorts of trouble out on the street outside the building so that they couldn't peacefully have worship on Sunday morning. You add on top of that a season of his ministry in this congregation where for 12 years he went through a health crisis where he could very barely even speak, only preaching at a whisper for 12 years. He said during that season that after a sermon, I felt more like one dead than alive. You know, Charles was somebody who understood what it was like to navigate when life was challenging your theology. What does a person do when life challenges our theology? How are we to respond to such things? How is it that you respond when what you believe is thrown into the crucible of the circumstances of your life and you have to make decisions and you have to make choices on how to proceed and what to do? That is what Psalm 27 is all about. We break it up into two sections. We're going to look at David's uh, sort of his theology of faith, which we see right at the very beginning. And then we're going to see a uh, sort of... How David responds to life when life challenges his theology. I'm going to move pretty quickly through some of this this morning uh, because I think so much of it is is obvious. I really want to uh, just kind of get to the end and bring it home for you. But David, we see in verses 1 through 3, has impeccable theology of God. He understands who God is. Listen, he says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it's they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though a war arise against me, I'll be confident. This is a man who knows the Lord. He describes who the Lord is to, to him, right? He says the Lord is what? He's my light. He is my salvation. He is the stronghold of my life. And you notice the the. Pronoun my. The, the assumption is here that he's got a personal walk with the Lord. The Lord is not just a stronghold. The Lord is not just a light and a salvation. He's mine. David knows the Lord intimately and personally. He's experienced the Lord being a light in his life. What does he mean by that? Well, light serves the purpose of shining into darkness. It illuminates Darkness. Darkness. Sort of stands representatively, at least, for danger, for ignorance, for fear, for sadness. David knew all of those things, and he says, "In the midst of every kind of darkness, it's the Lord who's my light. When I run to the Lord, I see the light. Life might bring into my world danger and ignorance and circumstances that cause me to be sad and afraid, but when I run to the Lord, I find that He is my light. He He lights up my darkness." chases the darkness away. Light reveals the path. It it indicates knowledge. It indicates truth. The Lord is the one who shows me the way. The Lord is the one who, who reveals to me truth. The Lord is the one who imparts to me knowledge. Psalm 36, verse 9, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. I love the way the psalmist puts that. In your light, do we see light? It's his, way of saying, it's his way of saying that it's God's light that defines all other lights. When we look to his light, he provides definition for our light. When we run to his truth, he defines all truth. And every other truth comes under him. And if we want to know anything rightly, we know it because we run to him and find the truth. S. Lewis Johnson says this We never know anything correctly until we know God's interpretation of it. He's right. David knows the Lord as his light. His light. What are the great characteristics of heaven? You know one of the great characteristics of heaven? When we're with Christ forever? There's no more darkness none isaiah 60 verse 19 and following the sun shall be no more your light by day not for brightness or excuse me nor for brightness shall the moon give you light but the lord will be your everlasting light and your god will be your glory your sun shall no more go down nor your moon withdraw itself for the lord will be your everlasting light the great things about heaven is the Lord Himself, the glory of the Lord, will be for us in everlasting light. There will be no darkness, literally nor figuratively, because the Lord is our light forever. David understood these things. He had great theology of God as His light. He also says, the Lord is my salvation. He simply put, he's saying, when I'm in trouble, when I'm threatened, when I'm in danger, I run to the Lord and He's the one who rescues me and He's the one who saves me. And David had a whole lifetime of examples of this, right? We don't have the time this morning, but we could trace this all through the Old Testament in David's life. In Psalm 3, he writes, verses 1 and 2, Verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 3 says this, The psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom his son, O oh Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, There is no salvation for him in God. And verse 8, But salvation belongs to the Lord. Oh, you can say all day that salvation, there's none for me, but I know the Lord. He's my salvation, and salvation belongs to Him. You saying it's not there doesn't make it not there. Because the Lord is my salvation. He'll rescue me. He'll help me. David was a king. He understood war. He understood battle. He knew what it was like to be threatened, chased, in danger. And for him, the Lord was not only his salvation, but he was the stronghold of his life. He knew that his life was always in the Lord's hands. He's my stronghold. It's military terminology. It's a strong place where we find security and protection. God is, David, saying, he's my fortress. If you, think, um, if you think old battles, right? When I hear this, I think big castle with a wall around it. And you think of the, the king leading his army. <clears throat> and you, you, you imagine him being chased on the battlefield and running back to his fortress, knowing if I can just get into the fortress, if I can just get through the gates of the stronghold, I'll be safe, right? David a king says the Lord is my stronghold If I can just get to the Lord He'll protect me He'll take care of me He'll shelter me I can find in him safety I can find in him security I can find in him refuge He's my light He's the one who saves me He's the one who secures me And protects me David understands who the Lord is You get that? His theology is great It's great. Well, what's the result of having great theology? Well, David tells us in those first few verses, because I know all these things about the Lord, because I understand the Lord this way, whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? The result of understanding these things is he's not afraid when things happen to him. I don't have to be afraid because I know who the Lord is. I don't have to be afraid when people come against me. I don't have to be afraid when danger comes into my life because I know the Lord and He's my light and He's my salvation and He's my stronghold and He'll care for me. I don't have to be afraid. What can puny little men do against me when I know the Lord? When He's for me, who could be against me? David says, even if war breaks out around me, I'll be confident. Confident. Why? Why? Because I know the Lord. I know who He is. I can face anything. That's good theology, right? Good theology that results in really good fruit in a life. A a, a life that says, I'm not afraid and I'm going to live in confidence. Great theology. By the way, just making a connecting point to the New Testament. My light, my salvation, my stronghold. We're we're reading through the eyes of David, an Old Testament saint. But you and I live on the other side of the cross in the New Testament season, right? And you and I understand that even as... David could look to the Lord as a light And a salvation and a stronghold We see the Lord even more Clearly on our end of the Spectrum because the Lord Jesus has Come because the Lord who for David Was a light of salvation and a stronghold Has come near to us in the Lord Jesus Christ and he stood Among men and he lived and he Walked and he breathed and he said Things like Things like I am the light of the world Whoever follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. He said things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by Me. I'm your salvation. I am your light. He said to people things like this, Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, that is, people who need a refuge, and I will give you rest. I'll be your fortress. Run into me and you can take a deep breath. Oh, the Lord who was David's Lord came near to us in Jesus Christ and made what David saw from a distance even more vivid to our imagination. David's got great theology. it has got great theology and it's bearing great fruit in his life. But here's the thing about good theology. We don't know if we truly believe it until it's challenged. You see, we don't know if we truly believe it until it's challenged. Until it goes through the crucible of life circumstances. One author said it this way, anyone can sit in church and say they believe in God. But when tough times come, what they really believe come, becomes obvious. To them and to others. You see, circumstances do one of two things to our theology. They purify and strengthen our faith and our trust and our belief, or they burn it up and expose it as fraudulent. That's what circumstances of life do. They put us through the fire, as Peter says. The circumstances put us through the fire, and that fire either purifies the real deal or it burns up the fraudulent. And David was a man who, when he writes this psalm, Life was challenging his theology. His circumstances are not good. What are the problems he's dealing with? Well, we see it all throughout the psalm. Uh, in the very beginning, we see that there's a problem. He's got enemies who seek his destruction. Now, we get glimpses of that in this first two verses. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me, my adversaries and my foes, he starts mentioning adversaries and foes and enemies and armies that are encamping around him. Even though it's a great statement of faith, he's giving us clues to what's going on in his life. He has real challenges. He has enemies. He has armies that are against him. There's war on the horizon. And down in verse 11 and 12... He says, give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. So life is challenging his theology. There are enemies who are coming after him. They want him dead. They want his life snuffed out. And they are actively pursuing that end game. I'm going to tell you, when you've got people after you to kill you, life is challenging your theology. And this was real for David. And it's worse. He's feeling forsaken. You see that in verse 10? For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. David is not only. He's not only got these dangerous enemies on the outside, but he's got problems inside. On the inside, he's feeling all alone. He's feeling forsaken. We don't know the whole context here of what he means by my father and my mother have forsaken me. We don't know the whole sort of historical context beyond that, but we don't need to. That's not the point of the psalm. What David is trying to say to us is I had more problems than those outside of me on the inside. Even the people who are the closest to me who are least likely to walk away from me have walked away. I mean, who are the last people you think are going to walk away from you in most circumstances? I mean, if everybody else hates you, you can usually pick up the phone and call mom and dad, right? And at least find somebody there who's happy to hear from you. I know that's not true in every circumstance, but on, on the whole, that's true, right? I mean, even if you're an ugly baby and everybody else can see it, your mom and dad say, man, that's the most beautiful baby ever, right? They are in your corner from the start. I um, David says, I don't even have that I don't even have that I don't even have mom and dad that I can go to Everyone's left me I'm all alone And to top of it all off, verses 7-9 through nine, The Lord seems distant to him Do you see that? Hear, O Lord, when I cry and answer me Don't hide your face from me. Don't cast me off. Don't forsake me. So in the midst of these enemies, and in the midst of this loneliness, he's got this other problem that he's crying out to the Lord, and the Lord doesn't seem to be answering him, and the Lord doesn't feel to him to be near to him. It feels to him like the Lord is distant, and not listening, and not answering, and on the verge of actually rejecting him like people have rejected him. He's utterly lost the feeling of intimacy and closeness with the Lord you ever felt like that before you've gone through seasons where there's challenges on the outside coming at you there's serious stuff going on on the inside of your heart loneliness, anxieties and fears and you feel all alone and you pray and you cry out to the Lord and it just seems like your prayer bounces off the ceiling and hits you in the face and you wonder, God, are you listening? Do you care? Are you anywhere near? Are you even paying attention? Have you ever wondered, I wonder if the Lord would actually leave me too. I wonder if maybe I've done something that would cause the Lord to reject me. And that seed of doubt is there. Maybe I really don't belong to Him. Maybe He won't answer. This is what David is dealing with. His theology is remarkable, but life is challenging his theology. You see? On a lot of different fronts. So how is his flesh tempted to respond? Well, how is your te- flesh tempted to respond when that happens? I think of one word. It's fear. Fear. David gives us in the first verse a clue. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I Fear. He's a stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? You see, the first verse is actually a statement written after the fact. Where David is telling us the resolution of his problem. But in that, he's giving us a clue to what his real problem was. It was fear. He was afraid. He was afraid of the enemies. He was afraid of what was happening inside of his heart. He was afraid maybe the Lord had rejected him. The fear is real. David feels exposed and he feels afraid. And his theology has come into a head-on collision with his circumstances. Let me ask you, what do you do? What do you do when your theology comes into a head-on collision with your circumstances like that? What do you do? How do you respond? Do you crumble? What do you do? Well, we see in the bulk of the psalm what David does, and we've got to just move kind of quickly through this. But I'll give it to you. The first thing we see is he longs for worship. He longs for worship. He longs for worship. He leans on prayer. And then he makes two critical decisions. The first one is he longs for worship. We see this in verses 4-6, through six, the, the text that uh, Meredith and, and Audrey sang so beautifully in the song a few moments ago. One thing I ask that I, the Lord, that I seek that me dwell in the house of the Lord forever, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. He's talking about the house of the Lord, and this is a theme of this group of psalms that wrap around Psalm 27. You see it in 23 and 26 and some others. And it's a theme throughout the Psalms that we don't have time to trace, but the idea here is the house of the Lord. In David's day there was no temple, it was the tabernacle, but it was where the symbolic presence of the Lord dwelt. If any Old Testament Jew wanted to feel the nearness of the Lord, they would go to the house of the Lord because it was there where in their minds the Lord's presence dwelt and it was there where they could be the closest to Him, the nearest to Him. And it was in the context of the, the worship with God's people that God came near to them and revealed himself to them worship was the highlight of their lives it was the nucleus around their whole around which their whole lives would orbit and david for whatever reason in the circumstances when he writes this song he's not able to go there but in his heart he's longing for it right there's one thing that i want more than anything i want to go to the house of the lord and i want to be with god's people for worship Because he's thinking, if I could just get there, I would find help. I would find help. I'm feeling distant from the Lord, but if I could get to the house of the Lord, if I could get among God's people, if I could get where there's singing and praying, and where there's the study of the Word, if I could just get there, I wouldn't feel so distant from the Lord. Because in the context of worship, we find the presence of the Lord in real and powerful ways. David says, if I could just get there, if I could just get to worship with God's people, there are some things I would do. I'll offer sacrifices. I'll sing and make melody. I mean, don't you love that? David says, if I could, I will offer sacrifices with shouts of joy. I'll sing and make melody to the Lord. David is longing to go to God's house so that he can sing at the top of his lungs. Did you catch that, Americans, in 2017? We have a problem with this we don't like to sing we don't think we're supposed to sing unless we're singers Oh, nonsense to get a chance maybe we'll be able to post this at some point on our Facebook page or on the website there was a session from the conference uh, that the Gettys put on this week on worship that was taught by Alistair Begg and he he addresses this point in very pointed ways from a from an Irishman's perspective Irish people like to sing. An Irishman coming to America and watching what Americans do and don't do. Remarkably insightful. There's nothing worse than coming into the congregation of the Lord's people and seeing people stand there with their hands in their pocket jingling their change. Oh, I say that because I've been that guy. David says, oh no. No. I just want to get to God's house so that I can shout for joy and sing and make melody to the Lord. That's the highlight. One of the highlights of my, of my going there is to be able to proclaim the goodness of the Lord through song. Apparently he finds that helpful. He says, I want to go there because it's there that I can gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in His temple. That's what I want to do. I want to gaze upon His beauty and I want to inquire in His temple. Do you know what? Do you know what? The whole purpose of corporate worship is for the people of God to have an opportunity together to offer a sacrifice of praise so that they might be able to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord that they might be able to see the Lord clearly for who He is. That, is. that is the responsibility of everyone who leads in worship, is to lead people in such a way that they might be able to, without distraction, gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Because we know that if you can just for a moment capture a little slice of who the Lord is and what He's like, it will revolutionize everything about your life. And so my job as a pastor is not to impress you with with great wisdom from my own mind. My job as a pastor is not to entertain you with all my stories. It's not to give you a pep talk to cheer you up. It's to open up God's Word and to deliver it to you in such a way with a heart that says, God, help them to see you through this somehow. It's the job of every singer who stands on the stage and leads us in singing. It's the job of those who pick up the scriptures and read it publicly for us. The job of us all is that God's people might be led into the presence of the Lord, that they might gaze upon his beauty and be captivated by him. The last thing I want, and I don't you'll do this and and I don't mean to it's not I don't mean this as a rebuke. The last thing I'm interested in is hearing from you. Oh, well, that was a great sermon, Pastor. What I want to hear. He made Himself real to me this morning. I saw the Lord. He showed me something about who He is that I didn't see before. Gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. David says, I just want to get to God's place so that I can gaze upon His beauty. It will change everything about my life if I could just get there. Because he says, if I go there and I do this, what's going to happen? God will be my refuge. He's going to conceal me under His wings. He'll hide me in His shelter. He'll lift me high upon a rock. My head shall be lifted up above my enemies. It's just his way of saying, if I run to Him and I can get to the place of worship, the Lord will shelter me and He'll take care of me in the midst of my distress. And I love that little piece that he says right there. My head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. You know what he's talking about? You know, when when life challenges our theology and life begins to crumble around us, our problems consume our perspective. Have you noticed that? They consume our thoughts and our attention. They sort of have a way of blocking everything else in life out. And we get this sort of a, a tunnel vision. And all we can see is the problem that is before us. All we can see is the challenge that is in front of us. And we focus on the problem. And practically speaking, God gets erased from our world. And David says, if I could just get to the worship of God's people, the Lord will put His hand on my chin and He'll lift my gaze up away from my stuff so that I can see Him. He'll give me what I need most to look away from my trouble and to be able to see Him. He'll lift up my head. I think of Peter walking on the water. You remember that story? What Peter needed was to look at Christ. And when he stopped looking at Christ, he sank. And when he looked at Christ, exhilaration. He also leans on prayer, doesn't he? This is so obvious. Verses 7 through 11. It's just the bulk of that is David's cry in prayer. What does he do when life challenges his theology? He cries out to the Lord in prayer. He cries out to the Lord. Honest prayer. Passionate prayer. Specific prayer. There's no, Lord, help me in these general problems that I'm having. There's no, Lord, I have an unspoken today. Right? There's, Lord, you've got to help me. You've got to be gracious to me you got to you got to you can't hide your face from me don't cast me off teach me lead me protect me that's what i need god do it please desperate he prays he longs for worship and then he makes two critical choices verse 13 he says I believe I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He chooses to trust in the Lord. And the second thing, verse 14, he chooses to wait on the Lord. If you catch the flow of the psalm, verses 1-6, through 6, he's speaking to his audience. And verses 7-12, through 12, he's speaking to the Lord. And the last two verses, you know who he's speaking to? He's speaking to himself. When life crashes into his theology... He wrestles with the Lord in prayer, and then he looks himself in the mirror, and here's what he says. I believe I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land. I will wait on the Lord. Be strong. Wait on the Lord. He has to tell himself twice to wait. I can identify with that. Yeah, when it's all said and done, the problems aren't gone, but he declares in his heart what he does not feel. The Lord's going to help me. I trust Him. It's not fun and it hurts and I'm afraid, but I will trust him. He will come through for me. I will look on the goodness of the Lord. One day, somehow, it will happen. I choose to trust him, he says. He'll help me. He won't forsake me. He won't remain distant. He won't let my enemies destroy me. He will come through. I choose to trust him, he says to himself. Self-trust the Lord. Corey Ten Boom said this when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark you don't throw away the ticket and jump off you sit still and trust the engineer it's beautiful right you sit still and you trust the engineer he says I trust you Lord I trust you I'm going to see your goodness you're going to come through for me and he says to himself wait for the Lord wait, wait, wait for the Lord What is the greatest temptation you and I face when our life circumstances crash all around us? We want to take matters into our own hands and we want to act to try and fix everything ourselves. And you know from your experience, like I know from mine, the more you do that, the worse it gets. And the more exhausted and exasperated you end up, it's because it's the opposite of what we're called to do. What are we called to do when life goes nuts around us? Wait on the Lord. We are impatient people. Quickly saw a study this week. 80% of people in this particular study done by Fifth Third Bank, 80% of the respondents said that they were patient people. Yet, here the, here's the, more than half of the people surveyed hang up the phone after being on hold for one minute or less. One minute or less. 71% frequently exceed the speed limit to get to their destination faster. There's a few liars in that study, right? Should be like 89%. Nearly a third of the respondents ages 18 to 24 wait less than one second before bypassing a slow walker. One second. When waiting for a table at a restaurant, nearly a quarter of respondents ages 18 to 24 wait less than one minute before approaching the host again after the wait period has passed. You said 20 minutes. It's 20 minutes and 30 seconds. Why am I not at my table? You laugh nervously. I know what that means. Look up the statistics on impatience sometimes, and you'll see what's going on in our culture. We get everything instantly, and we want everything instantly. And we think everything should come to us instantly. And in the midst of that kind of a culture where we have that kind of an expectation that we can watch the entire season of a sitcom that was meant to be shown once a week on a Saturday as we binge on Netflix so we don't have to wait week to week to see the next episode, right? In a culture that's grown up with that kind of an instant ability to have everything right this second, in the middle of that, the Lord says, Wait on me. Wait on the Lord. Wait for the Lord. I introduced to you in an introduction a man named Charles. That was Charles Simeon was his name. Charles Simeon pastored that particular church for 50 years. It was 12 years before he was ever invited to preach in the afternoon service. 12 years Five years, and after five years, the assistant pastor left. You know what? They didn't even ask him then. They hired somebody from the outside to come do it for another seven years. He had gotten a court order from the local magistrate that said the ruling was the people of the church could not lock the pews on Sunday morning. You know what? He filed it away, and he never used it one time. Challenge after challenge after challenge after challenge. And in every case, Charles Simeon said, You know what? I'll just wait on the Lord. Started that Sunday night service and I told you he'd the building, he got the locksmith to open and all that jazz. He said, You know what? We just won't do it. He waited on the Lord. His legacy is remarkable even today. We still read Charles Simeon quote him here on Sunday mornings rather often but whenever you see his name on the screen with a quote no underneath that is a man who understood through the reality of his life what it meant to trust the Lord and to wait on the Lord when the life circumstances around him crashed into his theology his theology stood the test and his legacy is the legacy of one who trusts in the Lord and waits on the Lord Let's pray together. Father, we've come this morning into Your place. We've come to worship in Your house as Your people. And we recognize abundantly how impatient we are. How horribly impatient we are. How dreadfully we want everything instantly. And so when life crashes around us and problems come and challenges face us, we want it fixed we want it gone we want it obliterated now not one more second not one more minute not one more day not one more week yet in the midst of all of our circumstances we hear your still small voice saying wait for it wait for it wait on me oh I'll come oh I am who I promised you I am And I will do everything I promised that I would do. But sometimes you will wait. Because oftentimes, the thing that's most important is not what you want at the end, but what I need to do inside of you while you wait. And God, we are impatient people and we don't want to hear that. And some have come into this place this morning exasperated, exhausted, spent at the end of their rope. Because they've been trying frantically to navigate the challenges of their life and their own strength. And all it's done is make matters worse. Help them to see you this morning and to hear you say, wait on the Lord. Teach us patience, God. Teach us what it means to trust you even when we don't feel like trusting you. Flood our hearts with worship. Enliven our prayer life so that when circumstances come our way, we're not stumped as to what to say, but like David, we can just cry out to you the, 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 the needs of our heart. Help us to trust. Help us to wait. And help us to be content while we do those things, we pray. Amen.